I'm Sydney Weddell. And I'm Bonnie Willison. And you're listening to Introduced. There was this man named Otis. We think that's what his name was. For the purpose of this story, that's what we're going to call him. And Otis lived in northern Wisconsin. He was a fisherman and he ran this bait shop on a lake near Rhinelander. And at some point, Otis goes south to Indiana. And when he comes back, he brings these rusty crayfish with him. Uh, Have you seen rusty crayfish? No, what's a rusty crayfish? So rusty crayfish look kind of like miniature lobsters. Um, We have this... Why do we why do we have this and what is it? Like what is it encased in? We have this little rusty crayfish encased in like a plastic block. It's like a little bit smaller than my hand. Oh. Yeah. Kind of like a miniature lobster almost like these yeah. giant pinchers that are kind of red. Yeah. They're supposed to be identifiable because they have this little rusty patches on their on their backs. Um because there are crayfish that are native to Wisconsin, but these specific, the specific species is, is from the South predominantly. And you can, but definitely should not. And maybe I shouldn't even say this because it's illegal. Uh, I use these as bait to catch bass and muskie and perch and, you know, like these big game fish. And oh. the story goes that Otis released the crayfish that he brought up from up from Indiana with him into this lake where he runs his bait shop and then the crayfish just take off. His plan was to establish this crayfish fishery um, on on that lake where his bait shop was and then on other area lakes where he could come back and harvest them and then sell them to other fishermen as bait or to other bait shops and basically have this what felt like a limitless supply of crayfish and supposedly all of that was happening back in the 1960s but what Otis and other people who are participating in this trade didn't realize at the time was the success of the bait crayfish that they were introducing into these lakes was happening at pretty much the expense of everything else in the lake and today we actually classify rusty crayfish as invasive which means they are capable of causing economic and ecologic harm. What were these crayfish doing? I asked Dick Lathrop about that. He is a research scientist with UW-Madison Center for Limnology, but he spent a whole career working for the state's Department of Natural Resources as well. And he explained what happens when you introduce a rusty crayfish into a lake, like what happens in that lake next. A lot of our northern lakes had a lot of aquatic plants in them, and the crayfish go in there and just eat all the aquatic plants, they eat fish eggs, uh, and they'll denude a lake bottom of all the really nice aquatic plant habitat that was in there. So you're basically screwing up the the whole fish community and the ecology of a lake, Prescott Lake. Which is really, really close to the border between Wisconsin and Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Prescott Lake. They used to have a lot of aquatic plants, I was told, but back in the late 80s, uh, it was loaded with crayfish, and there's hardly any aquatic plants. And so if you don't have aquatic plants as habitat, it's just not good for the, uh, the whole fish community, the whole ecosystem. I kind of imagine these crayfish as like lumberjacks that are like deforesting the bottom of the lake. Does that seem right to you? <laughs> that does seem right. Or um, out there with... Uh... Like a weed cutter, just <laughs> going for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they're cutting, cutting down all, like all the good stuff. All, all the, the good stuff, all the fish, fish habitat, just eating themselves out of house and home. Seriously. Yeah. So Dick first heard the story about the crayfish introductions one summer in the '90s. So in theory, three decades after they began. At this point, he is working for the DNR. So he's sitting on the stock on Presque Isle Lake. And this commercial crayfisherman comes floating on past in this boat, but he's got all these crayfish traps in it, and uh, he's out to hunt some crayfish. And Dick described him as potentially disgruntled. And so Dick and this crayfisherman start talking, and then Dick asks him a few questions about the history of crayfish in Presque Isle Lake. And he, that's when he mentioned to me that he used to work for this guy, and now they they're more competitors, so, you know, I don't know if, if you can believe everything he was saying, but he was saying this guy uh, went down to Indiana, 
brought some crayfish back and dumped them in this particular lake where he, his family or he had a bait shop or his family did. And then he said he went off to the Vietnam War and he came back and the crayfish were just exploded in this lake and everything was looked great. So he took them out of there and he went to other lakes and planted them. Well, that's just one maybe way of them getting around and it can't be verified. Uh, and apparently he supposedly had a map. This, this, this guy that I was talking with said that the guy who went to Indiana that was running the bait shop, he had a map with pins on where he put the lakes and when. Um, but nobody's seen the map and maybe doesn't exist. And anybody now wouldn't even want to admit it because it's illegal to be moving invasive species around. Oh my gosh, this is so intense with this map. Has, has anyone seen the map? No. And so, so Dick has not been able to confirm whether or not any of that story is true. But if it was, it could help explain why some of the lakes up north have rusty crayfish and some lakes don't. Because because that's a question that's on a lot of people's minds. And finding the map is not going to remove the crayfish from any of these lakes where they already are or prevent them from spreading to the new lakes. It's, it's not going to bring back lost fish habitat or boost declining fisheries either. But Dick has been thinking about the map since the first moment he heard about it, and he is not someone who likes loose ends, was the impression I got from talking yeah. to him. And for him, it exemplifies this fundamentally human point about invasive species, which is that so many of the plants and fish and other creatures that wind up causing problems in Wisconsin's lakes and rivers were introduced to those ecosystems by people. I'm Sydney Weidel. And I'm Bonnie Willison. And you're listening to Introduced. We work at Wisconsin Sea Grant, an organization that does research, education, and outreach dedicated to the stewardship and sustainable use of the Great Lakes. We're based at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and here at Sea Grant, we think a lot about water. Bonnie, do you have a favorite body of water in Wisconsin? Yeah, I guess I'd have to say... Lake Koshkonong. It's one of the biggest lakes in Wisconsin, actually. It's it's south of Madison, and I grew up on that lake, and my, my mom grew up on that lake. We would always go swimming and boating, and I just, like, you know, love the sunsets there, and so I'd have to say that's the body of water that I'm, like, the most tied to. What about you? I grew up on Lake Michigan, so that lake will always have a really, really special place in my heart, I yeah. guess. Um, but I was really lucky that I got to spend a summer working up north at this field station on Trout Lake, which is in northern Wisconsin, a little bit north of Manaqua. And that lake has also been like the backdrop to slash is central, a central figure in so many of my best memories. So oh. that lake also is really, really special to me. And Trout Lake was also where I met Carol Warden. Carol is a DNR aquatic invasive species specialist. And when I asked her what her favorite lake is, she said that I was asking her to pick a favorite child. But then she also said her favorite lake was Trout Lake. So, <laughs> um, so we might run with that one. Um, but Dick and Carol are, have been friends for a really long time. And so when Dick heard about the map, he asked Carol if she could and do a little investigation for him. Carol remembers Dick asking her about the map at a Christmas party back in 2012. She said she didn't really have a clear picture in her mind of what she was looking for, but she agreed to help out. But that isn't exactly how Dick remembers things. I was bugging Carol about it probably for three or four years before she finally said, okay, I'll do it. Stop bugging me. I, I really like her. Yeah. I, I, she's just a <laughs> cool person, I thought. She's the right person that could go, you know, and, and do this interview. It sounds like Dick is using Carol as kind of like a private investigator at, at this point. <laughs> if anyone is going to have the last name Warden, I just feel like that's their destiny. So in 2013, Carol heads out to the bait shop that the crayfisherman had mentioned to Dick all those years ago. And if you've never been to one of these bait shops, it's not... It's not like you're walking into a Cabela's. It's it's a little different. Well, in terms of bait shops up north, 
I was picturing exactly what I walked into. People hanging out, selling live bait for people to go fishing. And uh, I don't know, I guess I mostly just envision a literal map on the wall with, you know, the lakes that have crayfish like markered or outlined. And maybe, I don't know, like now that I'm thinking of it, maybe just some records. But if those records existed, the people who now own the bait shop didn't know about them, or at least they didn't show them to Carol when she when she came to ask. Mm. But they were able, these people at the bait shop were able to tell Carol from memory where they had trapped rusty crayfish before, before that was not allowed. Um, and according to the notes Carol took at the time, they had trapped along the Manitwish chain, Big Bearskin Lake, which is a little bit south of Manaqua, Butternut mm-hmm. Lake, just like lakes that if you were going to go up and fish, you might you might end up stopping at. They also told Carol a lot about the history of the bait shop, like who had owned it over the years and what had happened to those people. Mm-hmm. I tried to contact the bait shop, but I couldn't get a hold of anyone. Dick said the story Carol heard didn't exactly corroborate the version he'd been told earlier. And without the map or any other records, it's pretty hard to pin down the chronology and the geography of the crayfish introductions or to grasp how many of those introductions were made intentionally by humans. But map or no map, the story of the rusty crayfish in the Northwoods is inherently also about the people who brought them there and how they've been impacted since. In many ways, it's also similar to the stories about so many of the invasive species that have found their homes in Wisconsin's waters. A lot of invasive species get moved around by people. And I think, you know, so it makes it really hard to understand why one lake has it and why another one does it if you don't understand that part of it. It isn't all just that an invasive has to move by some river stream or something out of one lake and connected to another lake, that they can be put somewhere where you don't expect it just because somebody moved them intentionally or unintentionally. So every time you bring in a non-native species thinking that you're going to benefit from it, we end up regretting it. I mean, how many times has this happened, whether it's, you know, insects, birds, uh, um, rabbits, uh, you name it. So is Carol still looking for the map? Carol told me that she would love to see the map, but that finding it has never been as big of a goal for her as she thinks it might have been for Dick. And then she made this point that really, really stuck with me. She said that the difference between her and Dick is that Dick can actually remember this time when there weren't crayfish in the majority of the lakes up there. But for Carol, that Wisconsin, where where there are rusty crayfish in most of the lakes, is, um, is something that feels pretty normal. I'll never like really know what Trout Lake looks like without rusty crayfish. And he does. I think you could zoom all the way out and, and think about the state. For example, the DNR has in addition to rusty crayfish, it has 42 species on their current aquatic invasive species list, but there are so many factors like changing global trade networks, um, tourism patterns, infrastructure um, and development, and not to mention climate change that are creating all these new pathways for species to wind up here and to be introduced or to be introduced and be successful here. and. Depending on how you define it, there are over 15,000 lakes in Wisconsin and 84,000 miles of rivers and streams, also according to the DNR. The cool and powerful thing about water is how it transcends political boundaries. You know, you have watersheds that extend beyond the state, like you have the Mississippi River running down the western border of the state, and then there are great lakes to our north and to our east. And that makes managing invasive species this really complex challenge. So yeah, speaking of international waters, here in Wisconsin and in the Midwest, we have these Great Lakes. How would you describe geographically what the Great, how the Great Lakes look like on a map? Well, I always think about like Michigan first. It's the only Great Lake that's completely contained within the United States, and it borders Michigan and Wisconsin. But it's it's essentially the same lake as Lake Huron, like they're connected. 
um, and Lake Huron shares a border with Michigan and Canada. Lake Superior is the furthest north and the furthest west. And then the two lakes to the east are Lake Erie and Lake Ontario. And all of these lakes are connected either to each other or connected by rivers. It's wild that these Great Lakes contain 90% of all the fresh water in the United States and 18% of all the fresh water in the entire world. Yeah, I, I totally feel like we take these for granted just growing up here, um, not really realizing that we have so much fresh water just, you know, sitting out there. Um, and the Great Lakes are also important to the economy, if you think about it. You know, people use them for fun, go fishing and boating and do tourism. Like there's the circle tour of Lake Michigan that people can take a road trip around. Um, and then people rely on them for a lot of jobs, like the, the shipping industry, um, other industries that rely on water. I love thinking about how much the Great Lakes really provides this area. Right, and if you think about it too, they're, they're international waters. The moment for me that I really realized what that meant was I was driving around with my family on Michigan's Upper Peninsula and the radio was on. And then all of a sudden we realized that like we were picking up French on the radio. And it was this crazy realization that the radio was coming from across Lake Superior, which was actually, you know, French speaking Canada and like Ontario. And that is just like there. Yeah. You can't see it, but it's there. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. So if you go to Lake Michigan today, We'd probably see a really clear, giant lake. But it always strikes me that it's hard to tell what's going on below the surface of the water. Um, I was curious what the lake might have looked like before all of our development and our industry, fishing and shipping and all these things we've been talking about. You know, what was what was going on in the lake then? I like to point out, you know, the, the Lake Michigan of today is a completely different lake than the Lake Michigan of the 1980s. Uh, the 1960s, 1880s, um, just profound changes uh, to the ecology of the Great Lakes. Titus Seilheimer is the fisheries outreach specialist here at Wisconsin Sea Grant. I asked if we were to go back to say the early 1800s, what would be the tiniest living things in the lake? Yeah, uh, so I mean, early 1800s, uh, you know, that is very early in the sort of, you know, at least European settling of the, the region. Um, there would have been a, a much different mix of algae out there, the, the tiny aquatic plants. Um, that's something we can actually, we can actually go back and look at that. Uh, we can, scientists will take cores of the sediment and they can actually uh, divide up the sediment into years and actually look at those progressions. And so we can go back and actually identify these species were, you know, abundant uh, before the lake was changed. Mm -hmm. And these are the species that are abundant uh, now. Okay, so we have, we have tiny bits of algae. Mm -hmm. And then what is eating that? Right, so that is, you know, that is the, the base of the food web. That's, you know, biomass-wise, and that's biomass is a term where we uh, talk about, you know, sort of, we could talk about fish biomass or algae biomass. It's if we took it all out of the lake and weighed it, how much would that weigh? And so if we had 10,000, say, kilotons of algae, um, the zooplankton, which are what eat that, there would be uh, 1,000 kilotons. So you need a lot of algae, you need a lot of the thing, the tiny things. Right, lots of the tiny stuff. Yeah. Uh, so the algae uh, is, is really the, the main food for uh, the zooplankton, and those are the mm -hmm. small uh, grazing uh, invertebrates mm -hmm. that are swimming around in the water column, um, and also the invertebrates that live on the bottom of the lake. So the zooplankton are probably out there grazing. They're you know actively feeding Sorry. on, yeah, yeah. they're kind of like the cows of the lake. Oh. Okay, so then moving a step bigger, what what's at that point. Uh, then we get into the prey fish. So those are the smaller fish that are food for the larger fish. Um, and so they tend to be, uh, in, in the Great Lakes especially, you know, if we were back into that early 1800s, there would have been this, uh, what's called a flock of closely related species. Uh, they all kind of ate different food. And um, so it was an interesting mix of okay. some of these species not really found anywhere else in the world, just in the Great Lakes. Uh, so on the top would be our, our predator fish. Um, and 
really for most uh, most of the, the northern Great Lakes, um, other than Lake Erie, that would have been lake trout. Uh, lake trout was really sort of the top predator. Um, burbot as well. Burbot's a freshwater cod. And the food web is not so simple, you know, like for example, there's lake sturgeon that would be in the middle who aren't prey or predators and um, whitefish as well. So do you, thinking about all those the whole system that we just talked about. Do you think the Great Lakes was prepared for new species to come in that people brought? That's a, you know, that's a good kind of ecological question. And I, I would say in general, um, you know, sort of most undisturbed ecosystems aren't really prepared. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Great Lakes have been sort of this unique example. They were, you know, separated Um, You know, it's a pretty defined watershed. There were, you know, not a lot of connection between uh, the ocean and the Great Lakes. Uh, Lake Erie and up uh, were definitely separated. Uh, They had the Niagara Escarpment, that big cliff that Niagara Falls falls over and that we can go and see in Door County here in Wisconsin. Um, That really separated the lakes. And uh, so it was a, a pretty untouched system since the the last glacial uh, retreat, you know, say 10,000 years, 12,000 years um, of this system getting up and running and, you know, being in, in pretty, pretty well balanced. Um, and then that's when, you know, new species started getting added and uh, some of those had really large impacts. So like Titus said, the Great Lakes are really in the middle of the continent. They're the only way out to the ocean is the St. Lawrence River. And this river um, is super long. It has really giant long rapids. So only one or two species of fish could actually travel that river and maybe get in and out of Lake Ontario. And they could could get into Lake Ontario, but they couldn't make their way past that. Why? Have you ever been to Niagara Falls? No. Me neither. Yeah. I would really love to go. So Seen some um, pics. <laughs> yeah. The Niagara Falls is this obviously giant waterfall. Not too many species of fish um, can get up that, you know? It would take some real talent. How did these species start coming in the first place? What was that first step? Some of the first pathways, um, you know, early on would have been accidental uh, transport, you know, mm-hmm. really it's all, it's back to humans. Cause you know, it's, it's, how did we move these species? Um, you know, some of them we would carry with us by accident, things like plants, uh, where the seeds might be in, you know, some load that we're, we're carrying, or even, you know, even today on our boots. Also, I think early on, really before the, the, you know, impact of these non-native species was that well understood, mm-hmm. there were a lot of intentional releases. So, uh, you know, things like, hey, we we have this species where we came from. Let's add it to the Great Lakes. It'll be great. And, yeah. you know, in some cases that it wasn't great. Yeah. And then humans, right, we start building canals. We want to get we want to get to the Great Lakes and we want to be able to ship on them. Right. That's right. You know, it was the, those canals where we started breaching natural watersheds, yeah. connecting waterways. We, you know, the Erie Canal started at the Hudson um, and connected the, you know, through the Finger Lakes, connected the Lake Ontario watershed to the Hudson River watershed. Did you ever sing the Erie Canal song in school? Do you know what I'm referring to? Um, no. Oh, no, no. I'm going to have to sing it. Wait, yes, but you should still sing. Uh, it's like, um, got a mule and her name is so yeah, yeah, yeah. 15 <laughs> miles on the Erie Canal. And then there's a part that's like, we hauled some barges yes. in our day. Yeah. Yes, oh, we definitely, <laughs> I've had that song stuck in my head throughout this whole writing of yeah. this episode, um, because... In our, like, I don't know, American history music class, we sang this song. And um, looking back now at the Erie Canal, I'm I'm really shook about how long this canal is. Like, 
Have you recently looked at a map of it? Like the song does not do justice. I mean, it, the photo's kind of small here, but like as you can see, the Erie Canal like literally goes through the whole state of New York. That's kind of insane. It's so... I can't see it again. And the canal is fairly flat most of the way, but then there's a huge step to get up to the level of Lake Erie that they had to cut through. Um, and then they constructed the Welland Canal, which goes around Niagara Falls. And so that connects Lake Ontario to Lake Erie. And that was completed in the early 20th century. And really with these that canal, it opened up this pathway for species living in Lake Ontario to move to the other lakes if they could get by with the ships. And you remember lake drought, which we talked yeah, about earlier? Was, yeah. New technologies made it so that people were fishing 8 million pounds of lake trout out of Lake Michigan every year in I the early 1900s. I comprehend that number. But in the mid-1940s, numbers began to drastically drop of the lake trout that they were able to catch, so that people who used to catch 6,000 pounds of fish in just one netting were bringing up nets with six fish, like six individual fish. Can you imagine going out to your nets where you used to catch 6,000 pounds and getting only six fish? I don't know what I'd do. Yeah, that's pretty drastic. And we'll learn why after the break. Okay, so Sydney, how would you describe a sea lamprey? You know, um, what we used to do at this, uh, this job I had, we used to do this. We, we saw, like, someone had a preserved sea lamprey sample one time, and um, we thought it was, like, kind of weird looking because um, it's, like, this long, slimy, eel-type fish. Um, but we, we would start making these sea lamprey faces, at each other like all the time um what did a sea lamprey face look like do you want me to teach you how to do it yeah okay so so close your eyes close my eyes yeah okay and then like move your head like backward into your neck yeah Mm -hmm. like that and now open up your mouth as wide as you can i'm showing my teeth yeah um kind of like make your mouth like as circular as possible yeah <laughs> and I might be taking a photo. Oh, <laughs> yes, Did you get it? No. <laughs> I kind of want to see what I look like. Okay. Yeah, it's the like one. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, this is your visual. Oh, so beautiful. Um, speaking of preserved sea lamprey specimens. Oh my God. Are you going to... Ah, oh, Bonnie. <laughs> Can you smell it already? Oh, it's so weird. Um, describe this. Um, like, honestly, my worst nightmare. <laughs> I, like, uh, my, my, my eyes, like, are immediately drawn to its mouth, which is on the underside of its body but it's also just like it is its body like its mouth is just like how its body ends (laughs) and I can't see any eyes but that doesn't mean it doesn't have any just can't see him yeah what does its mouth look like okay it's I can like see into its throat maybe it's just like this round gaping hole (laughs) and there are rows of teeth just everywhere um okay so yeah sea lamprey are this primitive form of fish um you're right they have no jaw they split off from like evolutionarily split off from fish and other other things even our ancestors that developed jaws like 400 500 million years ago so They've been around for a really long time in in pretty much the same form. Um, So commercial fishermen started pulling out lake trout with these sea lamprey attached to them or seeing fish with these round wounds. 
it was the commercial fishermen that were the first to kind of identify uh, that this was happening because they were, you know, they were fishing like they always had, and they were pulling up these fish with these kind of round-shaped wounds, yeah, you know, holes in their side or with lamprey attached. Yeah. So they're literally, they're getting all their nutrients from blood. That's so um, troubling. Yeah. I, I mean, sea lampreys truly the, the vampires of the Great Lakes. Yeah. Uh, and they go, you know, they go from, you know, being maybe six inches long mm-hmm. and over that 12 to 18 month period grow to, you know, up to 36 inches long. Um, yeah. So just rapid, fast growth. And it's yeah. because they're attaching, um, sucking blood and fluids out of those fish. So the number we have, it's uh, a single sea lamprey uh, to get to spawning size will kill 40 pounds of fish in about 12 to 18 months. Oh, wow. So huge impacts. And, and before the, the lamprey control uh, program starts, there's hundreds of thousands of lamprey in pretty much all of the Great Lakes. Each one has, I think, uh, Lake Michigan, 700,000 was the peak mm-hmm. sea lamprey population estimate. So 700,000 times 40 pounds of fish. That's a huge impact on our lake trout. So by the by the mid twentieth century, lake trout are uh, extirpated or eliminated from Lake Michigan. Just all of them. All of them. They're gone. Oh my god! You know, gosh. all that combination of of factors really uh, really hurts the the lake trout populations. So I'm assuming over time, we we were like, we need to figure out how to get these out of the lake or how to how to stop these. Like, how did we figure that out? Really, the overall lamprey biology. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they all have sort of this juvenile stage where they're they're burrowed down in the sediment and they're filter feeders. Yeah. Um, for some of them, uh, like the sea lamprey or our native chestnut and silver lamprey, uh, there comes a point where they're like, "Okay, I'm going to transform," um, <laughs> and that's the that's the official name. It's they're transformers wow. at that point. So they they go from being uh, sort of small filter feeders, uh, they turn into their uh, juvenile adult phase mm-hmm. and then they uh will head out out downstream yeah. out into the lake and that's when they become parasitic the u.s and canada started working together um all the states started working together and you know they started they were like what kind of uh what kind of tools do we have to control sea lamprey and they started throwing a lot of things at them uh building barriers building things like uh, these electrical barriers in the rivers uh, which early on they called them death fences because, you know, basically uh, we have electrical barriers today that are uh, much safer. And these were basically if anything went in the water, it would kill them. And I think yeah. things like moose would, you know, like wander too close and be killed. Oh, no. Um, so, you know, really high risk tools that maybe weren't as effective, but it was yeah. really the the chemical control uh, tool. Uh, and so they... Uh, People like Vern Applegate, he's uh, you know one of the early researchers into the the lampricide programs. You know, through thousands of chemicals, like six or seven thousand different chemical compounds, and these you know companies were sending all their different compounds they might have. They just sent them into the lab, and uh, you know they had at the the Hammond Biological Station in mm-hmm. uh, Lake Huron in Michigan. Uh, just had all these jars set up. They would put in a fish and a lamprey, and they would put in different doses of these chemicals and then yeah. just track to see what would kill lamprey but not kill the fish. You know, they identified uh, uh, one compound. Uh, mm-hmm. The TFM is sort of the shorthand wow. for it. And it, you know, very effective. You can dose it into the streams uh, at the right concentrations. Uh, those sea lamprey, so we're, we're targeting the juvenile lamprey at this time yeah so so while they're while they're babies they're in the stream for a few years right so that's when we're trying to kill them yeah really most of their life they're in the the stream it's Mm. just it's not until the end they become parasitic and go into the lake so so did that work the the poison yeah so one of the most successful invasive species control programs so we went from you know sort of peak peak population numbers of sea lamprey in the mid-20th century and now over 90% reductions in those populations, which kind of the, the other side of that is um, when it appears that it's not a problem, people kind of forget about it. Um, and the only reason it's been successful is that every year 
Uh, teams from U.S. and Canada are going all over the place. They're yeah. treating the streams. They're monitoring where the lamprey are. Um, and, you know, it, it's that pressure. And if if we stop the program, uh, lamprey numbers would increase uh, wow. right away. So we still are putting in a lot of money, I'm assuming, for the chemicals for the people to go out every spring and and do this. And that's the only reason that we're able to keep them down. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's 20 to 25 million dollars a year uh, spent uh, to maintain that, those low levels. Yeah. So, so it's it's you know it's costs. It's if we didn't if lamprey hadn't come into the Great Lakes, that would be 20 to 25 million dollars we could spend on other things. Just to clarify, it was actually poison number 5209 that ended up being the right combination of chemicals to use now as our lamprecide. So before that, they tried 5208 poisons. Exactly. So at this time, there was substantially less predators in the Great Lakes because of this. And also it was before the Clean Water Act and and there was also overfishing that was going on. Um, and lamprey weren't the only species to take advantage of the new habitat that was opened up to them. An East Coast fish called the alewife also came in through the canals, and they found basically no predators to eat them. If I went out to the ocean and grabbed just any any saltwater fish and mm-hmm. threw it in Lake Michigan, most of them would die, but some of them have this uh, physiological mm-hmm. ability to survive in fresh water. Yeah, I read that by... 1965 over like the last few years alewives became 90 percent of the fish mass of lake michigan yep yeah so nine out of every 10 pounds of fish in the lake were alewife as titus mentioned alewives grew to an incredible number and then they all started dying Uh, millions started dying at once and they created these floating masses of dead fish that stretched for like 40 50 miles um, and then they would wash up on the shore, like around Chicago, and they would cover the beaches with like literally feet of dead fish goo. And um, this type of thing was also happening in like Huron and Ontario. Um, and so people like, you know, back then had to had to bury the fish. And like it was just a huge smelly problem, you know, using chemicals to control just the amount of fly maggots that would take over them. And Titus was saying that he knows people in Manitowoc, Wisconsin, who remember when like the wind would drift over their city and from Lake Michigan and they would smell like all these rotting alewives in the in the lake. Do scientists and know why that's happening? They actually still don't really know why why this happened. Like dying off in giant numbers isn't a natural part of their life cycle. And they're thinking you know, maybe it had to do with the time of year and when they spawn and this these die-offs still happen today. But even despite the die-offs, alewives were still somehow thriving. Um, but we did manage to get our numbers down. And I asked Titus, how did we do that? Yeah, so that's, that's a complex story with a, a lot of different players. So, uh, you know, one of the first steps that was taken... Uh, Back in the you know, kind of mid-60s, the state of Michigan said, okay, um, Howard Tanner, you're the, the head of fisheries uh, with William Toddy, um, do something about this. And so what they did was- No they, pressure. No pressure. Uh, do something amazing. And th- so they <laughs> said, well, we've got this lake full of food for fish. Yeah. Why don't we add some new fish that will eat them? And so- uh, what they did is, you know, they they looked outside of the region and actually went to the Pacific Northwest um, and looked at some of those salmon species um, and said, well, here's a, a fish that you know swims around in the ocean, eats schools of small silvery fish. Maybe they would do well and also can spawn in fresh water. So, you know, physio- physiologically might, might be, be able, able to, to survive. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, starting in, in the late 60s, uh, coho salmon were stocked first. Um, and then uh, quickly after that, Chinook salmon uh, were stocked. Yeah. I don't know if that would have been a natural choice for me, though, just because we already have seen so, like, so many populations that have come in on their own from the oceans or something like that and just kind of wreak havoc, like... 
and then um michigan like they actually decide to let's import these fish like what do you think about that yeah you know i i think it was a different time it was definitely um i i don't think hopefully you know today we wouldn't see sort of one one state or one uh jurisdiction just deciding (laughs) right because what we know about these fish um you know, if we stock a fish in Michigan, it's going to swim all around Lake Michigan. It's going to go to different states. It might go into Lake Huron. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, salmon especially, you know, they're capable of swimming thousands of miles in the Pacific Ocean. So nevertheless, Howard Tanner decided to start stocking these salmon in Lake Michigan. So what I'm picturing is like live salmon being airdropped into the lake. Is that? That's exactly what I was picturing too. I was picturing like somehow like shipping crates of fish. What they actually do is they import fertilized eggs from the West Coast and then they raise them in hatcheries in the Great Lakes region. And so um, then they're able to put the young salmon into the streams and they hope that they'll survive enough to get big enough for people to fish for. And the salmon actually did well. You know, they, they ate alewives and they created a really exciting fishery for anglers who really like to fish salmon. Um, And all of a sudden, we had a giant thriving salmon industry in the Great Lakes. It was a huge attraction for bringing people here to fish for them. It's still, you know, very much, especially in Lake Michigan, uh, you know, salmon fishing, uh, the charter industry, uh, the recreational fishing industry still really rely on on those trout and salmon. Um, And they have a, you know, they have a a pretty loud voice with the states, um, you know, because they bring a lot of people out on the water and uh, catch a lot of fish. Mm -hmm. The Erie Canal was just the beginning of the canal building that we'd be doing. Uh, In the 50s and 60s, people started thinking, we've got all this grain that's growing in the middle of North America, in the Midwest, and wouldn't it be nice if we could ship it, you know, from using the Great Lakes, ship it all the way out to the ocean so we could like start exporting it. And that's when they started looking at the St. Lawrence River. So that's the one that connects like Ontario to the ocean. Exactly. Yeah. So they thought, why don't we build a seaway using this river? Um, And they thought it would bring a huge boom to the Great Lakes, basically opening them up to international shipping. But by the time they finished the seaway, the modern ships were too big to really fit through. So it wasn't exactly the huge economic boom that they predicted. Yeah. So, you know, really, when you look at, you can look at the history of, of new species coming in and Really, it was, you know, sort of before the Seaway, St. Lawrence Seaway opened, and then after the, sea, the Seaway opened. Uh, it was really a, a really large increase in the number of species that started arriving. Um, the, the new pathway that was open is these large ships have uh, what are called ballast tanks. Mm-hmm. So uh, as they load and unload, they can pump in water, pump out water to keep the boat balanced. Um, if they're uh, traveling empty, uh, they can pump full their their ballast tanks, and it helps them stay balanced. So it's a, yeah. it's a safety thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's important uh, for those ships, but it also uh, sucks in a lot of water. It can suck in sediment, and it can uh, also pull in lots of different species. What they found is it's it's almost like this little mini ecosystem inside those ballast tanks. They've got a lot of sediment down on the bottom. Places like uh, the Baltic Sea, the Black Sea, where um, you know these sort of brackish areas, the ports are you know not super salty, not totally fresh water. So they've got this mix of species that can maybe survive in fresh water, and so that's what uh, really start popping up in the Great Lakes. So um, once all these ships that came from Europe are starting to make their way into the lakes for the first time. Um, do we see changes right away to the lakes? And what what was the first um, fish that we, or species that we noticed that we'd never noticed before? Yeah, so late 1980s, uh, the zebra mussels are first found by a graduate student. They attach mm-hmm. to things. They are really good at filtering water and eating, zopl- or eating algae. Okay. Um, and they also have uh, what's called a villager stage. So this little uh, zooplankton-like stage where they're free swimming so they could you know they wouldn't necessarily be picked up in the ballast tanks as adults 
they would be picked up as this free swimming state. So sort of zebra mussels uh, rapidly colonize uh, the Great Lakes. Yeah. Um, and within about a decade later, quagga mussels arrive. And so fairly rapidly, uh, the, the quagga mussels actually replace zebra mussels. I think the most recent uh, mussel survey in Lake Michigan found no zebra mussels, oh, but wow. a ton of quagga mussels. They, if you look at a map of what quagga mussels mm -hmm. are in Lake Michigan, it's the deepest part of the lake, it's the shallowest part of the lake, it's, it's the whole lake. I mean, they, they kind of coat the whole bottom trillions of mussels you know we can estimate how many mussels we have in the lake we can also we know how rapidly they filter water and you can kind of estimate that between nine and 12 days mm -hmm. is all they would need to filter all the water in lake michigan wow. so you know just try to wrap your head around how how much an effect that could have on the lake whenever i went to lake michigan i i would always be like this lake is so beautifully clear. Like, you know, it's such a healthy, clean lake, but actually that's, in this case, it's not a sign of a healthy lake. I guess I was never really aware of the time when there weren't mussels there though, yeah. but I do remember getting my feet so cut up, like walking barefoot oh. over a bed of mussel shells. And I Ouch. think anyone who's been on the Lake Michigan beach can relate to this experience of mm. walking and stepping on one point in the wrong direction and just totally getting your foot sliced up. That really means that mussels have changed the food web in a huge way. They're filtering out all the plankton, you know, and taking all the nutrients. They'll grow on any surface, um, any pipe in the water, any pier, any boat, they'll live on that. Um, they decrease property values of property along the lake and there was one estimate that zebra and quagga mussels cost the u.s economy one billion dollars a year so i was curious what will happen in the future of the lakes i think the the sort of glimmer of hope from night uh from 2015 was mm -hmm. uh muscle densities it's kind of uh, we're starting to decline really? in everywhere except the the deepest parts of the lake hmm. um, and i think what I've been telling people over the years, you know, uh, one of our strategies here is to kind of wait, you know, because the mussels haven't been here that long. They've been here since maybe, you know, quagga mussels since the mid 90s um, and maybe even later, maybe around 2000, 20 years in the life of Lake yeah, Michigan. That's not long. Isn't that long. So it seems like we're starting to see maybe that uh, there's going to be a decline. Maybe they've kind of hit their roof of their population potential and and hopefully we could you know get a, a decline where they kind of settle down uh to lower levels yeah. so i think that's you know one thing to hope for uh in the future i you know i, I think the the kind of sad inevitable uh view is that we have these are totally new lakes um you know we are probably not going to get to go back to what it was like no matter how much uh we invest in restoration yeah. uh, we're not getting back to the the species assemblage we had in the you know the 1500s so um, in some ways you know we can manage some things we can kind of accept other things and uh, we can do what we can we can stop try to stop new species from coming in that is one of the best you know the the most cost effective ways is to not have to deal with new species yeah during the period from about 1960 to 2000 about 60 new species were introduced to the Great Lakes. If you think about it, that's more than one a year. But since 2006, when stricter ballast regulations were finally passed, the number of new invasive aquatic species discovered in the Great Lakes has virtually stopped. Tim Campbell, the aquatic invasive species outreach specialist here at Wisconsin Sea Grant, was able to give me a little perspective on this. Truth of that is that we've really done a good job of addressing that through uh, some voluntary standards uh, from the maritime industry to uh, some regulations from the EPA. You know, the the last established invasive species that we can attribute uh, from ballast water is the bloody red shrimp, which I think was in 2008, and we haven't really seen you know anything established since then. I think stopping the spread of invasive species is really hard, and there will 
probably be more invasions, which bums me out to say. But um, even though it's hard, it doesn't mean it's not worth doing. And that because all invasive species, um, you know, invasions are human mediated, human behavior can change. Look at recycling. That's not something that happened 50 years ago or you know, 60 years ago. But over time, people change their behavior, so that's the norm. And most people recycle and most things get recycled. And so if you look at invasive species prevention, people can change their behavior. They can take really simple actions at the boat landing or when they're you know, planting their gardens to prevent the spread of invasive species. And if enough people take action, um, will we get to zero? That'll be really hard, but we might get to such a low uh, invasion rate that it becomes a much smaller problem, which I think we can you know, all be really happy about. And then um, you know, the idea of if something invades, it's a failure, like that's not great, but every day that you go without an invasion, you're, you're gaining some services that you would have lost had the invasion happened a year earlier or 10 years earlier. And <clears throat> as we wait longer for new invasions, there might be new technologies that help you manage them or um, better infrastructure to help you deal with them. But, you know, so even if it does happen, the longer we wait until it happens, the more benefit as a society we get out of it. This progress that Tim is talking about, even 50 to 60 years ago, this was a place where someone could go to Indiana with a bucket and come back and plant crayfish in lakes. And even if that's coming from a place of really good intentions, it can still have dramatic consequences years and years and years into the future. But whether whether you are coming with a bucket, you know, like this, the so-called bucket biologist, or you have a gigantic boat that you've sailed across the Atlantic Ocean, you bring that into the Great Lakes. Either way, it's humans who are acting as um, these vectors for introducing new new species into the lakes and rivers in Wisconsin. Yeah, since humans have been around, we've been moving around species to, you know, help us live, make us more comfortable, make it feel like home. Um, but a lot of times it's not something that we are intentionally doing to move something in that's gonna, you know, hurt the native species that, that have been living there. If we're the ones doing it, we're also the ones who can fix it. Introduced is produced and hosted by Bonnie Wilson and Sydney Wydell. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with a friend. You can find Wisconsin Sea Grant on Twitter at Grant and on Facebook at University of Wisconsin Sea Grant and Water Resources Institute. We would love to hear from you. Please send in your questions and comments to bonnie at aqua.wisc.edu. You can listen to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play. If you'd like to know more about IDing any of the things we've discussed on the show today, check out our show notes. We'll have more information linked there. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.